This is the Darcy Giroux Podcast, episode 18. Today my guest is Brian Peckford, former Premier of Newfoundland. We're going to be talking about his court case against the Federal Government of Canada. Uh, Mr. Brian Peckford, welcome to the Darcy Giroux podcast. How are things? Fine, thank you. Thank you for having me. How is the weather on the West Coast today? We've had a very poor spring and early summer, but apparently it's about to break and we're supposed to get the sun and some 25 degree weather. Oh, right on. Yeah. Um, well, thank you very much for coming on the show. While you were uh, Premier of Newfoundland, you were part of the constitutional negotiations between the provinces and the federal government, uh, the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which is entrenched in our Constitution, has been a popular topic of discussion lately. Um, now, I believe you are the last living signatory to the Constitution. Is that correct? Yeah, the last uh, living First Minister. Yeah. Okay. So, now the other, the, w- the main reason I wanted to have you on is so that you could tell us about your court case against the federal government regarding COVID regulations and how they infringed on the rights of Canadians. And, uh, well, first, if you can tell us about that, then I'd like to get into some more of the history of the Constitution and the Charter itself. Okay. Well, um, after the uh, so-called pandemic hit back in February, March 2020, and the various governments around Canada began to implement various mandates, lockdowns, whatever else you want to call them. Um, many Canadians, including myself, became concerned about the degree, the kind of lockdowns, the kind of mandates, and the degree to which uh, the governments were going to implement them, and that it became clear within a few months after February, March 2020, uh, that it seemed to me and to others that uh, the governments were infringing upon the uh, rights and freedoms enshrined in the Constitution Act of 1982, which contained the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. There's a lot of people around Canada, even to this day, who still believe that the Charter was negotiated by itself, and that what was done in 81 and 82 was a uh, Charter of Rights and Freedoms was put in our Constitution full stop. That's not the way it happened, and uh, it's it's a it's a very serious misunderstanding of our constitution. It was in 1981 the first ministers came together uh, to uh, to negotiate a patriation agreement, which was that we would finally sever our last sort of sovereign our ties to impact over. Canada and Canada could amend its own constitution and not have to go to England anymore. And part of that was the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, plus many other things, which I'll get into in a minute. But to come back to your original question, um, and so in the 2020, as things progressed, it became clear to me, as I say, and many others, uh, that the governments were infringing upon the rights and freedoms that were in the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which were part of the Constitution Act of 1982. Um, And so we started to write about it and speak out about it, and I did. And uh, as time went on, uh, things got even worse uh, because other uh, agencies of government got involved. For example, just to use one example, Dr. Charles Hoff, a medical doctor in British Columbia in Lytton, B.C., was suddenly uh, accused of being a vaccine skeptic and uh, was deprived of his privileges at a local hospital in Kamloops because he held a view uh, that was one that said, I'm a little skeptical of these vaccines because I have patients, First Nations patients who have been vaccinated and they're coming to me with unusual ailments, medical ailments, which I cannot diagnose. That plus other like circumstances across Canada like that 
brought me uh, to speak out strongly against what was happening, and that this wasn't a democratic Canada when you had the College of Physicians and Surgeons and other agencies of both the province and the federal government instituting things which infringed upon the uh, Hippocratic Oath, which infringed upon the Nuremberg Code, which infringed upon the Helsinki Agreement, uh, which outlined after uh, the Nuremberg Code, things like autonomy, bodily autonomy, um, individual rights and freedoms, and so on. And so I began to speak out through my blog and in doing uh, public meetings that I was asked to do by citizens in various communities on Vancouver Island. And so uh, I started to talk the talk and, uh, and point out to people, explain to people the history of the Constitution, the history of the Charter, and uh, get large audiences, uh, overflow uh, audiences at, at buildings on Vancouver Island, and of course, a large uh, following on my uh, personal blog. And so, uh, and at the same time, many of the mainstream media started to refuse to carry any of my letters that I was writing them. And of course, uh, I was persona non grata. So you suddenly saw the press, you saw uh, the government and the government agencies, uh, you saw the pharmaceutical so, uh, or organizations, and then all of a sudden you saw big tech and everybody starting to uh, uh, close in in support of the governments in the Western world, and not only in Canada. And so uh, one day in early 2022, after going through all of this in 2020, 2021, I decided that not only should I be pointing out the violations of the charter, as I saw it, being one of the people that helped craft the charter, one of many, but one of first minister of the first ministers, and now all the other first ministers have passed away who helped negotiate that, and I was the only one left. I thought I had a special responsibility to speak out because I knew a lot of those would feel the same way as I felt. And so uh, I decided that not only should I do this in words and in speeches, but I should take action. I should sort of walk the walk. And so it was at that time, and, and I was aware, of course, of the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms, that uh, we, we, we spoke, and uh, I decided to join the uh, lawsuit against the federal government travel mandates. And the reason why we chose the travel mandates in this particular instance was because that particular government mandate which violated the Charter, the Charter's mobility rights, uh, was one that applied right across the nation. So if I took a provincial mandate, it would only apply to a province. But this one, and everybody could understand a travel mandate, Canada was built and became a country because of travel, because of transportation, <laughs> i.e. The, the river systems of our First Nations um, and our early explorers, French and English, as well as the First Nations, and then later the railway, which joined up the country from east to west. And so mobility and travel is, uh, you know, is uh, in our DNA, if you will, as a nation. And so everybody would understand it. And the other thing was uh, the, these travel mandates were starting to have an effect on individuals all across the country in various ways. Uh, family members unable to join in funerals of their loved ones, either their parents or their sister, brother, uncle, or aunt in another part of Canada. Uh, that uh, these mandates were, uh, many countries in the world never ever brought in travel mandates within their country. And that this was very odd, very unusual. Uh, and uh, therefore, um, I thought that this, and so did the Justice Center, that this would be, would highlight the problems that individual citizens are having with these government mandates. Other citizens who were also moving to take lawsuits joined in to my lawsuit, five other Canadians, and then several other individuals who were initiating these kinds of lawsuits. So we all came together. And so it's sort of one lawsuit now before the Federal Court of, of Canada. And it's now being heard and has been for the last several months. Unfortunately, uh, we all had an agreement that uh, the hearing for the uh, court case, which is 
ongoing with case management and, and both sides arguing over evidence and uh, expert witnesses appearing. All of that's happening, has happened over the last few months. But we had agreed to expedite this process and the court had agreed and the government of Canada had agreed. So we agreed on a, a, dump, a bunch of dates. Well, the federal government has come to the court and argued that it wants more time. And so they wanted to violate the agreement that we already had. Talk about violations, you know, I'm there to violating the Charter Rights and Freedoms, and then they come in and violate an agreement that we had with the court for a hearing date on September the 19th for five days. The court uh, heard their argument, heard ours, and sided with the government of Canada in delaying the uh, court case until October 31st. It's not a long delay, but it's still troubling, at least to me and to my lawyers, and we argued vociferously that the government hadn't made its case in wanting this delay, but the judge ruled otherwise, and that's the nature of our system right now, and so we have no choice but to go along with what the court has ruled, and so now the hearing is due to begin on October 31st and go on for five days till November the 4th, after which then uh, the judge will uh, go away and look at all the evidence and all the arguments and make a decision as to whether or not uh, the uh, Charter of Rights and Freedoms has been violated. Now, the mobility rights is in Section 6 of the Charter. Every citizen of Canada has the right to enter, remain in, and leave Canada. That's what it states, the mobility rights. Every citizen of Canada and every person who has the status of permanent residence of Canada has the right to move to and to take up residence in any province, to pursue the gaining of a livelihood in any province. One of the uh, people who are with me on this lawsuit is a small business person out of Ontario who works out of Southern Ontario but has an office also in Yellowknife in the Northwest Territories. Well, you know, to uh, the right to pursue and earn a livelihood. Well, this person's right to pursue and earn a livelihood is being violated all over the place. And uh, so uh, the other really disturbing part about this, which I'm sure your, your audience and you would be interested in knowing, that not only has the federal government petitioned to delay this lawsuit, they're now petitioning to have it canceled because they try to argue that it's no longer relevant because the federal government has uh, um, lifted the, the travel mandate. Well, number one, uh, from my point of view as a citizen, being around the law for a while, I actually took the federal government to court three times when I was Premier of Newfoundland and Labrador. So I've been around lawyers and court cases for a long while, uh, for decades, besides being one of the people who helped uh, craft the, the Constitution and the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Uh, I thought that if you broke the law, and if it was yesterday or the day before yesterday or last month, you still broke the law, even if the law changed later. Uh, or if you lifted something that was then broken, it was still, they still broke the law, and therefore should be the full brunt of the justice should apply. In this case, uh, not only are they trying to forget about what has happened to hundreds thousands and millions of Canadians who've been prevented from earning a living, who've been prevented from travel, which is their right under the Constitution. But the mandates have not been cancelled. They have just been suspended. They have just been suspended with the minister and the government of Canada saying, we can bring them back at any time if we feel that there's a necessity to bring them back. And so, therefore, for the government of Canada to argue that they've been lifted gives exactly the wrong impression. They have not been lifted. They have been suspended for a period of time and could be brought back again. And therefore, and then the other thing is, which is most galling to me, is that they all haven't been lifted or suspended. Canadians coming back into the country now still have to go through testing and, and quarantine. So you're violating people's rights every day now. You're still violating the Charter every day now because you didn't lift all of the mandates, so there are mandates still in place which are in violation of the law and of the Constitution. So to me, that's 
for the federal government to start arguing this concept of mootness, right, is all moot now because it's no longer applicable. As I say, is galling and arrogant in the extreme because they're ignoring the fact that the federal government, their, their government that they're arguing for, still has mandates in place which violate the Constitution. So this is most crazy in my view and makes me very angry to talk about it since the federal government took both this position of delaying the court case and then even wanting to have it dismissed before the hearing on the court case takes place. So the, the, the application to dismiss is set for September, uh, September, uh, September 21st. And my hearing and the hearing of the lawsuit is October 31st. So no, no doubt the court, the court will rule on the mootness dismiss case before they rule on whether we still have the case. And if, of course, they bring in, um, if the judge rules that, yes, we're going to dismiss it, then that hearing goes out up in smoke and we'll have to appeal uh, the decision to dismiss before we move on to the, the other hearing because it's no longer there. They got, they got it dismissed. So the other thing that this does, Darcy, which I think is extremely important, the people of Canada, and I've been across this country, I, I was elected to a parliament of this nation, the legislature of Newfoundland, 50 years ago this year, a half century ago, a half century ago. And I have watched, I'm a, as most people know, I'm a political person. I was involved in politics. I was in the legislature for 17 years. I was premier for 10 uh, years, for a decade. Uh, never lost an election. And uh, so I know a little bit about politics. Over the years, I have never seen the level of cynicism and skepticism about the nature of our governments as I've seen in the last several years, accentuated by what's happened in the last two and a half years. And the, when people who read my blog and who hear about what's going on in my particular case, people who are contributing to my case through the Justice Center, they can donate there to my case and other cases like mine. Um, I get on my blog, I get people calling me, I get people emailing me, absolutely shocked by what's happening in Canada. And then when they read that here is a signatory to the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, the only first minister left who takes out a law, has to take out a lawsuit against his own government, um, and that it gets delayed, and then not only gets delayed, they're even bringing in an, uh, a motion to dismiss it. That only adds to the fuel to the fire of those who say our, our, our nation is broken, that our constitution is not working, and that our governments doesn't have the best interests of the citizens and taxpayers at heart. So it's very, very troubling. And I'm glad you gave me the opportunity to walk through that um, um, lawsuit a little bit. Uh, but anybody can go to the Charter of Rights and Freedoms and read the mobility section, section six. Every citizen of Canada has the right to enter, remain in, and leave Canada. Every citizen of Canada and every person who has the status of a permanent resident of Canada has the right to move to and take up residence in any province to pursue the gaining of a livelihood in any province. I mean, cannot be clearer. And... Um, you know, and the, to those who say the the uh, the uh, the Charter of Rights is flawed, or the Constitution is flawed, or what you did, Peckford, is flawed, absolutely. As are you, as are, am I, as is everybody who's uh, lived and had their being. We are all <coughs> fallen people, and uh, we are through our religions or through our own spirituality our own rationality, acknowledging our fallibility, but work to improve it next time round, as we did in the Charter. There was no written Charter of Rights and Freedoms until 1981, put in the Constitution in 1982. So we improve upon what was there before we put 
rights and freedoms in writing so people had something to see, look at, tangibly understand. And so um, I do, as you can tell, get a little bit upset, which is, and the other thing is, I said earlier, Darcy, this charter wasn't a standalone document. The Constitution Act of 1982 has 60 sections. 34 are the chart. The rest are rights acknowledging indigenous people, acknowledging who are indigenous people, Inu, Inuit, and Métis, for the first time in our history, acknowledging that some places are poorer than others or other places are wealthier than others, and therefore putting a section in there on equalization. Whether the formula is wrong or not is another question. The question as to whether or not we are a compassionate nation and recognize that we have to share is now acknowledged in that same constitution where the charter is, right? Minority language rights is recognized in that charter. And the one that always failed to get us to having these things in the constitution and the change of content was the amending formula. Provinces and the federal government could never agree on how we would change the constitution in the future. So unless we had an amending formula in it, what was the point of having a, a constitution, right? We needed an amending formula up until 1981-82. That's why we had to go back to the UK because we didn't have an amending formula. It was still up to the UK to finalize and approve. And the patriation, that's what patriation means. It means that we brought the constitution home for good, final vestige of sovereignty. And now Canada has the power under the Constitution Act of 1982 to amend its constitution without any reference to the UK or anybody else on this planet, okay? That is there in the, in the Constitution. Those are the other things, as well as strengthen the province's power over non-renewable resources. That's also there, very important, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Newfoundland, a lot, of, a lot of provinces have resources, natural resources, and they're owned by the provinces under the Constitution, BNA Act, and we strengthen those. So these are all other things that are there. So when people talk to me, about the charter and wanting this change, this was a package. This was a package. Charter rights and freedoms, amending formula, indigenous rights, equalization, right? Minority language rights, non-renewable resources. So we were negotiating a package. And when you look at it in that framework, and I explain that, I get people answering me on, on email to say, Mr. Peckford, what? We got these charter rights and freedoms? When you had to negotiate with others, a whole package of other things as well, that's not a bad deal. Perfect? No. But a pretty good deal? Yes. And so uh, um, when looked at in that light, in that larger context, and given <laughs> that we went from 1867 until 1980, before there was all, any new constitutional change was made at all. Yeah. Yeah, for sure then one begins to understand it a little bit better. But to come full, come full circle, that's uh, perhaps I should stop there and allow you to ask some questions. Yeah, well, you've answered probably my first five questions already, so I, I, I really appreciate that. Um, and it is, uh, it is impressive what uh, you, the first ministers and the federal government, was able to negotiate given... Anyone who's read some of the history, obviously, there's a lot of conflicting personalities and political viewpoints that were in place there. Um, so it's obvious that throughout the COVID pandemic, to you and me and, and to my listeners also, uh, that the charter was blatantly ignored. When I read the Constitution, it seems to me that the jurisdiction and authority of the individual provinces is quite clearly laid out. But regarding the charter, when provinces or the federal government attempt to violate those rights of Canadians, what is the provision to ensure those rights are respected? Well, this is the, this is the great nub. But what the other thing that people don't understand is, is that there's a difference between the Constitution 
and federal legislation and provincial legislation. Under the BNA Act, which set up the country in 1867, there was a division of powers. We determined that we wanted to be a federation. In other words, we didn't want to be like the UK and have all the power in London. We wanted to have, because we're a large country, states or provinces or various right regional units, which would have so, so much power, and then so much other power would reside, which was more national, with the federal government, okay? The Constitution and what we did in 81 was to enshrine rights and freedoms for Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's not a federal act. It's not a provincial act. It's a national act. That's what a constitution is. So when people refer to me to the Bill of Rights of 1960 that Mr. Diefenbaker brought in, which is very important, by the way, in the sense that it was the first time that governments acknowledged that perhaps we should put some rights and freedoms in writing, but it only applied to the federal jurisdiction, the Bill of Rights. It doesn't apply nationally. It was a federal act. The very nature of Canada was a federal provincial. And therefore, in order to get a constitution, you had to have all units agreeing to it, provinces and the federal government. So what makes the charter unique in that sense and different from the Bill of Rights is that it is in our constitution and our constitution is to be permanent, right? And something that is the glue that keeps the nation together, okay? And so these are national rights, not federal rights or provincial rights. And that's the big difference. And when I explain that in public meetings and so on, you get an awful lot of people who suddenly say, I didn't realize that before. I didn't realize what the Constitution meant. It meant the permanent part of creating the country. Right? It's the values right, that form the glue that keep the country together. Then after you have those values, Right? And those rights and freedoms, you can go ahead and have your division of powers. And yes, you're responsible for this province. Yes, you're responsible for that federal government. But then when it comes to your general right as a Canadian, right, that is part of the Constitution and not in the act of any one jurisdiction. And therefore, and now the amending formula to change the Constitution in the future we don't have to have a Queen sign a proclamation. We don't have to have the United Kingdom Parliament to approve it first. All we have to do is get seven provinces and 50% of the population to amend not all the Constitution, but most of the Constitution. There are other elements where it needs unanimity. It needs every single province and federal government and parliament to pass it. But the majority of things are under the general amending formula, which is seven provinces, and 50% of the population. And that was made difficult, as was the British, the um, American Constitution on purpose, because it had to be difficult to change because you wanted permanence in your nation. That's the whole idea. Those values are permanent. For example, we put in there, which everybody tries to ignore, the supremacy of God and the rule of law, right? That's not a, that's not a federal jurisdiction, <laughs> supremacy of God. Uh, rule of law isn't a provincial jurisdiction. These are universal concepts which naturally implant themselves in a constitution which is for all the people. And when I explain it that way, then it becomes known. So what's happened now, to answer your question directly, is that and it began, by the way, very soon after the Constitution Act was started. It never started just with the pandemic, although the pandemic ex accelerated. The judges and the judicial system took note, of course, of this new Constitution Act 1982, because they were going to have to interpret it, right? The, the last court being the Supreme Court of Canada. But what was happening at around the time the Charter came in and the Constitution Act of 1982 came in, there was a decided shift in what the law societies and the lawyers and the judges determined was how they were going to interpret constitutions. And it became known uh, in, in, some, in some circles as the living tree doc doctrine, which said, uh, when we are now going to examine the constitution, we not only sort of interpret the law as written, which is what they should do, 
but we are going to give ourselves the power to determine what it is we think are the values that have evolved over time into our society and interpret the Constitution, not only with what was written, but what we perceive are the new values that have evolved in that society. They have no power or right to do that, is my argument. They have no power or right to do that. We don't have, unfortunately, a, a Senator Ten Cruz or a Governor DeSantis in, in, uh, in Canada, nor do we have a Judge Thomas or Judge Alito who are going back and doing the history of the Constitution and respecting the Constitution for what it is in the full knowledge that people, judges, politicians, if you want to change it, there is an amending formula. Use the system to change it. You're always telling us to use our system, to use our system, judges, lawyers, will use the system. There is an amending formula in place. And unless you go through the amending formula, you have no right to change it otherwise. And there's where the rub is. Nobody has really argued over the last 40 years since the Constitution came in what the judges are doing, uh, because most of the lawyers came through the law schools with that embedded in them as the new way, right, the new uh, rules to govern. It's like changing the NHL or a, a baseball game or a basketball game, uh, you know, without going through their own constitution and going through their own thing. They're doing it through some governing body without going through the process, right? And it's the lawyers who talk about process. It's the judges who talk about process and how important process is. And yet they're ignoring now the very process that they talk about. It's amazing. And so, so that's why when you ask me, well, what is in it, in it to it that forces the provinces or the federal government or Canadians, right? What, what's there to, it was always understood that all the judges would do and the courts would do would interpret the constitution, not add on to the constitution or create new law or create new policies. That I'm going to be giving a speech next week. Uh, in which I'm going to be reviewing all of this that I'm talking to you about now today in a more sort of detailed, methodical fashion. But it's unbelievably disturbing to me, and now to a fair number of lawyers in Canada who are on side with this, who, who understand, not, not as many as there should be, uh, but there are some lawyers in Canada now, and even some judges are starting to... Uh, to mouth certain phrases and stuff that uh, indicates that they're not t totally comfortable with this. For example, there are judges that have already ruled at the lower court level in some of the provinces without even referring to the supremacy of God and the rule of law, which is the two principles that start off the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. That's the introduction to the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. The fundamental part of the, of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms is this nation was founded, right, upon the principle of the supremacy of God and the rule of law. Here it is. I have it right here before me. Part one, right? Constitution Act 1982. Part one, Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. <laughs> What's the first words in the Charter of Rights and Freedoms? Whereas Canada is founded upon the principles that recognize the supremacy of God and the rule of law. And it says, whereas, it says, whereas, in other words, you are now, and it's a colon after that, not a period, not a semicolon, not a comma, right? Anybody who knows their English grammar, um, it's a colon. In other words, everything follows after this. And yet there are judges in this country who've made decisions on the charter without even referencing those two principles. Yeah, yeah, it's incredible. Um, there is so our society is violating its own constitution. Yeah, yeah, exactly. At the, at the echelon, at the top echelons of our power. Yeah. Um. Now, regarding the amending formula, there is a lot of talk about constitutional reform. Um, especially I hear stuff about uh, property rights and whatnot. Uh, from what I understand, though, you're not exactly in favor of reopening the constitution to have those discussions. Can you explain your position I, on that? I am. Oh, I am. Okay. But I, I, I point out the difficulty. And that's why I gave the history. 
the package was a package. You cannot open the Constitution and just deal with the Charter Rights and Freedoms, put the property rights in, and close it. When this is open, the 10 premiers and the prime minister are going to have an agenda, right? Including property rights for the Charter, but the indigenous people are going to want more clarity on Section 35, because all it says is to recognize the existing right, treaties of indigenous people. And who are the indigenous people? That's all. The courts are left to deal with it all, right? And, and start interpreting it. And so there, there are, and there are other uh, social agencies around the country, other groups around the country, municipalities, for example. Should Toronto continue to be uh, a, 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 a metropolis of what? Five, six million people? More than is in most of the provinces? Uh, the, these, these areas now say, uh, the premiers are, are restricting our ability to do uh, the, to operate our city. So there's bound to be uh, a huge push for municipal reform to treat the uh, uh, metropolitan areas over two million or whatever in a different manner, right? And that they have certain constitutional because they have so many people, right? The PEI hasn't got a million people, right? And Toronto has six million. And you hear this argument equalization. People are arguing about equalization. So I, I point out to people, uh, beware what you beware what you ask for. This wasn't a, con a charter that was negotiated just by itself. There's a package here, and it will be a package the next time. So know what this is about, number one. Number two, the nature of our, and this is reality, okay? This is real reality. The nature of our society as it sits right now is such that there's no way seven provinces are going to agree to open the constitution because many of those provinces are, are, are equalization provinces and they're not going to want any changes from the status quo because they're doing very well under the status quo very much. Thank you very much. So is Quebec doing very well. So in order to get the population of right 50% of the country and all the rest of it, right, you're going to have difficulties. They're going to want other changes like provisions that were in the Meech Lake Accord that failed. Quebec is going to want. Right. So this is a uh, that's why the, the, what we got was so important in 81, 82. The more, you know, I, I, you talk about it and people begin to understand, oh, my God, you know, it, it, this is right. You know, it was, so how hard Meet Lake was, how hard the Charlottetown Accord was. They failed. They failed. Uh, so there you go. So property rights, Peter Lougheed of the time, Bill Bennett of the time. Alan Blakeney of the time, Sterling Lyon of the time, Brian Peckford of the time, Agnes McLean of the time from PEI were all in favor of property rights and many other things that go into charter. I was also, and all the provinces supported me in having a better sharing of fisheries jurisdiction. I had to give it up in order to, for the country, in order to have a charter, in order to have the Patriation Act. You know, I had to give it up. And I fought, fought, fought for that from the day I became Premier, and even before I became Premier. This was very important. Our largest industry, the only province whose largest industry was largely controlled by Rideau Canal, by people in Ottawa, okay? Mm -hmm. how, how, how important that was. I had to relinquish that, even though I had all the provinces on site, the federal government wouldn't agree. Yeah. And property rights fell on the same sword. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Oh, I, I hear you. Yeah. Okay. So that's what happened. It wasn't that we weren't in favor of it. And it's not, in, not that I'm not in favor of reopening the Constitution now for things that I lost first time around. But if the Constitution reopened, you can be sure that British Columbia, Nova Scotia, PEI, New Brunswick, and Newfoundland are going to write a, a resharing in the, of the fisheries jurisdiction so that they have more influence over what happens in their industries, right? in their coastal industries, including British Columbia, including the uh, Nunavut, including the Northwest Territories, right? Very important, including what? So there's the rub when you start opening a constitution. That's why it took so long to open ours. So as much as people want to zero in on their favorite subject matter that they want to see in the charter, they're blinded to the fact because they're so dogmatic about what they want, especially people on property rights. And I understand it. I was too. And anybody who knows me knows that I'm pretty, pretty tough. And when I take a position, I, 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 I learn about that position, right? I learn about that issue. 
uh, right? Read up on that issue, consult people on that issue, and then I make a decision. And I take a position on that issue, as I have on, on the charter now, right? And, and I, therefore, property rights, I was totally in favor of. But in the larger picture, in order to get what we got now and fight another day, that's what we did. And I don't regret doing that because uh, we did get something. We did get a, the strengthening of, of the, as I said, the non-renewable resource rights for provinces. We did get at least an acknowledgement that indigenous people exist and that they're defined in three different ways, right? There are people who are Métis, there are people who are Innu, and there are people who are Inuit. We never had that in there before. And that we had to recognize that they have certain rights. That's in there for the first time. So, so I can go on and on. But, so that's the problem in reopening the Constitution. Number one, it is extremely difficult. Number two, be careful what you wish for because there's going to be a lot of stuff on the table. Well, yeah, we, we would be running the risk of a lot of uh, crazy stuff ending up in there these days, I think, right? Well, I, I say to people, especially Christians who, are, who, who, who understand, by the way, who understand the supremacy of God better than most other people who are more secular, that, uh, because many of them have said to me, uh, because early Christianity was persecuted. As you know, after Jesus, a couple of hundred years after that, when the Gospels were being written by Matthew, Matthew Mark, Luke, and John, and the other uh, um, parts of the Bible that were written of the New Testament, uh, the, many of these people who were adherents to that Christian faith were persecuted. I visited some of the places in Turkey, in Cappadocia, Turkey, and saw it with my own eyes. Visited the settlements that they made underground. Okay, and when I say this in audiences which are significantly Christian, you can see them nodding their heads because they learned that, especially more fundamental Christian uh, sects still learn about early Christianity. Many of the mainstream Christian denominations don't learn about that anymore. And they understand that if the Constitution gets open, in the secular society we live in today, one of the first things that's quite likely to be gone is the supremacy of God. Because a lot of people, God, I, I did a blog some months ago in which I said, is God a dirty word? Because there's a lot of people in Canada today who are non-Christian, who are non-religious, who, who are secular and believe that that's the way to go. We don't need God. We don't need a spiritual uh, underpinning. Right. We, we need some kind of moral code, but it doesn't have to be um, uh, linked to any any religion or any spirituality. And so if you took a poll today or right uh, on how many people actually practice the idea of supremacy of God, uh, you, you I, I don't think it would be very many. And so therefore, the, the chances of the supremacy of God uh, uh, being able to stand. Yeah. After a new constitutional reopening is a good question. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. That is a that is an interesting an interesting point. Um so you you mentioned earlier about the amount of cynicism you see in Canada these days. Um you know, and just so you know, I mean my audience is very libertarian leaning. Um most of them not very fond of government in general. Um, there is a quote that many of my listeners will be familiar with, which you might also be too, which is, um, whether the Constitution really be one thing or another, this much is certain, that it has either authorized such a government as we have had, or it has been powerless to prevent it. And in either case, it is unfit to exist. Now that's from Lysander Spooner and his essay on the Constitution of No Authority. Um, given that it does seem like without the political will to do so, the Charter will not be followed or respected, how would you respond to that quote? Well, I understand where the person's coming from, and given what has happened, especially in the last 30 or 40 years, there's a lot of validity in that. That's why, for example, on my blog, only in the last three or four weeks, I put an essay on 
please look at the New Republic of Liberland. There's a man in the Czech Republic and his cohorts who are libertarians and who discovered that there was a six kilometer, square kilometer tract of land on the banks of the Danube River. That when the Yugoslavia disintegrated and became individual states, Serbia, Croatia, uh, Slovenia, Macedonia, Bosnia, Herzegovina, Slovenia, nobody sort of claimed this six square kilometers of land. And this gentleman, in, who, by the way, was on a podcast with me a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, Vit Jedlika. I've, uh, I've met him a number of times, actually. Oh, well, wonderful. Wonderful. Well, if you look at his constitution or the constitution that he and his colleagues have put together and are now trying to get recognized internationally, it is one of great libertarian values. They've copied some of the American constitution and then amended it. For example, uh, the Supreme Court chief justice can be recalled by the people. It's a people-based uh, constitution. It's available online. Anybody who's right listening today or watching today can um, go into their computer and bring up the uh, the new the Republic of Liberland, and there in that website is their whole constitution. I read it and critiqued it for uh, this gentleman on a webcast, like I say, about a month ago, and uh, it's uh, a, a beautifully written piece of work and uh, satisfies a lot of the concerns that that quotation that you quoted uh, talks about and makes it a people-oriented one with certain structures, but all the structures are there based upon what the citizens want. And there is a process by which the citizens can uh, relieve the people of their very simple government and can relieve even up to the Supreme Court of that new republic. So that, that's an attempt to try to deal with a lot of the criticism that we've had. And I think one of the problems is this, uh, and this goes right back to Socrates, Cicero, up through uh, people like Montesquieu and John Stuart Mill, uh, and many others, Voltaire, all the way through to the French Revolution, American Revolution, and so on. Democracy has always been a minority governance system, not a majority. Okay? It is tough to be a democracy because it takes ongoing civil engagement to be successful. Democracies only continue to be democracies based upon the degree of civic engagement. What we have done over time has gotten lazy and allowed our representatives in our legislative assemblies and our parliament to speak for us completely and come back every four or five years looking for their renewal. We should be more involved on a weekly, monthly basis, all through that period that these people are elected, and we are not. And one of the reasons that has happened is because the power in a democracy got shifted, both in Canada and in the United States, to the administrative state, without a shot being fired, without any changes to the Constitution, where the power of the MP it moved first the cabinet and the prime minister, and now it's in the, the hands of the prime minister. The prime minister and the premiers control everything. And the lowly MP, you go ask an MP tomorrow, your MP, to bring this uh, particular resolution that he agrees with or she agrees with into their legislature or into the House of Commons. They'll tell you it might take three or four years to get debated. And by that, between that three or four years, a new parliament uh, the parliament is dissolved and a new election is held. And so they got to start from scratch after that next election is over. And so it's dysfunctional. 
and the MP has very little power, and the parliamentary committee has very little power. We saw this in spades. But the, our problem we got, Darcy, is that Canadians, outside of these people who are libertarian and understand this, these principles, Canadians deny, deny what I'm saying, that this exists. And on the parliamentary committee side, a former attorney general, minister of justice of Canada, was denied after it was discovered that the prime minister and the prime minister's office was trying to influence obstructed justice which the Ethics and Conflict of Interest Commissioner found to be true in a separate independent report, right, was denied giving evidence to a parliamentary committee. It was closed down by the Liberals and the NDP before she was finished in her presentation of how the Prime Minister's office and the government, right, circumvented and tried to cancel her to carry out justice as it was defined in law. And so there, that's a fact. Nobody can deny, nobody can deny the fact that the prime minister of this country has broken the law five times and still sits in the parliament of Canada. Canadians are denying that. They deny that, or, or they ignore, better said. They ignore that. They're, they don't want to be confronted with Northern, by the way, do they want to be confronted with the fact that our healthcare system is a disaster our once number one, number two in the world is now second last in the OECD, second last. Yet we spend the second amount, most money of all the countries in the OECD. We're number two in how much money we spend, but we're second last in the outcomes we get for all that money. Canadians still go around, I meet them every day. Oh, we got some wonderful healthcare system. They will not acknowledge that we have a broken system. We've allowed our system to crumble over the last 40 years. So it's just not the governments. We have, we have elected them. And then we've allowed them to run roughshod over everything. The Trudeau legacy is all you need to know. The Trudeau family, the Trudeau name, the only reason why Justin Trudeau is prime minister is because of the legacy, the false legacy of Pierre Elliott Trudeau. The false legacy of Pierre Elliott Trudeau, War Measures Act, Wage and Price Controls, and you name it, right? The Just Society, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, who fell from grace as soon as he became prime minister and then began drumming up deficits like, like a drunken sailor, right? Doing an, a, a, a War Measures Act because of an incident in one province, Right? And taking rights away all across the country, which had no bearing upon the rest of the country whatsoever. Wage and price controls, which was a you know, leftist uh, ideology, which has failed everywhere in the world. Right? And so here, here we have it. But we have this mythology. We have this mythology of politics. And that's what it is. It's a mythology. I served. I was around when Pierre L.A. Trudeau was there and fought him all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada three times over rights and provinces and so on. So I know. And so uh, until Canada, so democracy is very, very difficult. Uh, and uh, and one of, I, I've issued my own Magna Carta and one of the things in there that I, I'm, I'm advocating <clears throat> and I put it on my blog and I've gotten a big reaction from it is that uh, we've got to go back to square one, take that power away from the prime minister's office. In other words, reduce the staff. He's got over 1,500 in his office. Reduce it down to 500, okay? Take away over half of his staff. It goes back into the ministers and into parliament, right? Parliamentary committees cannot be just uh, canceled out by the majority, the tyranny of the majority. That's one of the things the founders of uh, the United States, Madison and Jay and, 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 uh, and Hamilton and all these guys, um, were always scared about informing their constitutions was the tyranny of the majority. That's why there are two senators from Connecticut and only two senators from California. In other words, to balance it out, you see, so there wouldn't be tyranny of the, of the majority. And why do you have an electoral college? Same reason why. But we don't have a republic. We have a parliamentary democracy, which is quite different coming out of the British thing. So 
my point is is that in order for our democracy to survive the citizens must be involved. I've even suggested, for example, in meetings, they said, well, how do you do that, Peckford? I say, for your MLA and your MP, you form a citizens group in your riding, and you request, demand, as voters, that that MP and MLA meet with you twice a year in public forum. What have you done for me lately? Why did I elect you to be my MP? Why did I elect you to be my MLA? What is coming up in the next session that's going to affect my writing? What's going to affect me as a citizen of Canada or as a taxpayer? What did you vote here? You voted for that? We didn't elect you to vote for this, right? right? And, and we've got to get political parties to be accountable. They're not accountable right now. No political party in the Parliament of Canada today has a has a audited financial statement of what they do with that money that they get from the people of Canada who are members of their party. That should be law. Every political party that's registered provincially and federally must produce their financial state. Why should we give any of these parties billions of dollars to spend and elect them as a government if we don't even know how they spend their party money? That's right. Yeah, absolutely. Seems ridiculous. But, uh, well, Brian, um, this was really great. And I think uh, I know you're busy and I, and I told you I wouldn't keep you uh, any longer than an hour. So let, where can the listeners find your blog? Okay. First of all, that's uh, P-E-C-K-F-O-R-D, Peckford, the number four and the number two. Uh, that's the year I was born, 1942. And so Peckford, a four and a two, two numbers, dot WordPress, all one word, dot com. Okay, wonderful. And anybody can go in and read the over 5,000 entries that are in there. In the last 12 months, there's been over a million. Wow. Go into my blog. Wow, impressive. I am definitely going to go. And that's a personal blog, right? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I'm, I'm definitely going to go back and uh, uh, read your critique on Liberland, and I will, I will try and put a link in the show notes to it also. Yeah, and, and anybody can also go in just uh, into one of whatever platform they use, you know, uh, Firefox or DuckSgo or Google or whatever you use, and just put in, um, for example, in this case, Petra 42 Magna Carta, and up will come automatically my article on my blog dealing with that. That's the other thing. Because it's been so popular that it, it's triggered in their algorithms and, and it comes up. And so people can go in that way and read different uh, essays that I have. And so there's a lot in there, if, they, if you read through it, uh, on the Constitution. The Myths of the Modern Day Constitution, for example, is another essay that I did that you can pop up by just putting that in there, Peck for 42, myths of the, today's constitution, and so on. So that's how they can contact me. And of course, um, I also keep up to date on my lawsuit, on my blog, so they can get the latest on the lawsuit, right up to today. There's a one there today, posted last night, from the Justice Center, who are handling my case with an outside lawyer. So I have like three lawyers, full-time almost on, my, on this lawsuit with the other citizens. And they just issued a new press release yesterday, which I carried on my blog, bringing everybody up to date. And I personally brought them up to date a week or two ago. So there's lots there to read. And then I, I publish a lot of Dr. Paul Alexander's work. I publish a lot of what's on Brownstone Institute. Uh, yeah, and, and I publish a lot what the doctors for ethics talk about. Which are which are very very good uh, studies and so on, so yeah, so that's so they, they can get me there, and um, they can follow what I'm up to. Yeah, perfect. Well, thank you very much for coming on, and I'd love to have you back um, after the uh, after some of these court cases take place. Okay, sir. Okay. Look forward to that. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, sir. That was Brian Peckford, former Premier of Newfoundland, 
Check out his blog at peckford42.wordpress.com. And if you want to support the Darcy Drill podcast, subscribe at Substack. Substack.